So on this adoption setting, let me just make a few comments about this issue as we get started. Then we're going to go to Mark chapter 1. But first of all, um, James chapter 1, James deals with how to hear, receive, and live out the Word of God. So in James chapter 1, he talks, he says this, starting in verse 19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because man's anger does not bring about the righteous purposes that God desires. So quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And then he says, says this, therefore, put away all moral filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the word planted in you which can save your souls. So receive the word. And then he gives this incredible illustration that you're very familiar with if you've been a church goer, believer very long. It says, list, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer of it, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom or liberty and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer, he'll be blessed in what he does. So he says, receive the word, act upon it. And then the question is, if you're sitting there listening to this, you go, well, how, how do we act upon it? What do we do? And, and so he says this, and, and to me, in this particular part of James, it's a three-point statement in how we do the word. Listen, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Strong statement. He said, you know, if you you claim to be a Christ follower and you don't guard your speech. He says later in the book, he says that with the same tongue we praise God and curse men. He says, where in the world does that come from? So point number one, if you're going to do the word, keep a tight rein on your tongue. Then he says this, religion that God our Father considers as pure and undefiled as this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, so let, me, let me just say that I, I've been around for a while. I've been in a lot of men's groups accountability, relationships, whatever. And, and, and frequently, as we get together, we'll say, well, how is your speech? Are you blessing people with your speech? Proverbs 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Are, are you blessing your wife? Are you blessing your kids? Are you speaking kindness to them? We talk about that frequently. And we ask the third question frequently, uh, are you keeping yourself from being polluted by the world and the worldly system that talks about you got to have more and more and more, or what you look at, or, or what you set your affections on, or, or how you live your life as a steward of His grace. We ask that frequently, but let me tell you something, I've never been in a group that asked the second question. Look after widows and orphans in their distress. And yet it's right there. So, so caring for orphans and widows and people that cannot necessarily always take care of themselves is near to the heart of God. So, so this is a God thing. And we rejoice in that. We, we're going to have Love on Charleston in two weeks, so work day. And people said, well, have asked me, do you think it's going to really do any good? I said, you know, uh, 
if we go to five homes of five wonderful women in our church and we trim their hedges and mow their yard and help clean up around their house, it gladdens the heart of God because God is for the widow, the Bible says. And we take care of these little ones and we embrace them. God is for orphans. And so it's a high calling. So, so my encouragement to us this morning as a church is, is to walk beside those who are involved in this high calling in a prayer relationship and a friendship relationship because, listen to me, it takes a community of Christ followers to raise a man or woman of God. And we need to stand with them. I, I, I think about and rejoice in my children frequently. My children are grown and they're a delight to my heart. And I think about, for example, my son. My son was all boy. All boy. Loved rough and tumble. And so when he was growing up, Wednesday night here at the church, we had Royal Ambassadors. It stands for Royal Ambassadors for Christ out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he would go to RAs on Wednesday night. And the first half hour or so, they would do scripture and Bible stories. And then the last 35 or 40 minutes, they played football. And my son would come home with maybe dirty clothes and maybe a skinned knee. Dad, I love RAs. <laughs> and there are men who are sitting in these services today who led him in RAs, and I will forever be indebted to them. Same with my daughter. People just loved and cared for them. It takes a community of believers to raise a child. And so we're, we're called to do that. This morning before about quarter to nine, the children's choir was here early practicing, and they were practicing in this venue and then going to the gym to get sound checks and to be on top of their game. And as they left here to go down to the gym, they walked down the hall. Some of our deacons were here early setting up. Some of our child care workers were here to get their class in order. As they walked down the hall, there were five or six adults standing in the hallways. They go by and went by giving them high fives. Little children going down to sing, high five. And it was, listen, it was a holy moment. And I said, thanks be to God, I'm in a church where kids get a high five or a chest thump for singing about Jesus. It was a holy moment. So we need the body of Christ. I was, I was um, this summer I was flying from Asia and long flight. And whenever I go on a long flight, I have these incredibly lofty ambitions. I take books and I think I'm going to read and write and it lasts two or three or four hours because after three or four hours, your brain just turns to mush. And so then on these flights, you have individual seat monitors with a bunch of movies, and it's a gift. And so I'm sitting there, and I chose to watch a movie I would never intentionally choose to walk into. It was called Cinderella. Let me tell you, it was a great movie. It started off. The blonde from Downton Abbey is in Cinderella, which made me love it off the bat. But, but, but the, reason, the reason I loved Cinderella, and I love Cinderella, is because they live, what? Happily ever after. I like that. 
I like to go to a wedding and the bride looks so good and the groom looks dashing and there are people clap when they leave or stand when they leave and, and you think in your mind if you're there, they're going to live happily ever after. And then you realize, no, no, they're like us. They're, they're going to have ups and downs. Life is not happily ever after this side of heaven. We need the body of Christ. We need to support. Adoption can be very tough. Very tough. So we need to walk with people. So God bless these people. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, listen to the passage that I'm going to preach on now after that uh, side, side road, whatever it was. We're in the book of Mark. I'm at the kingdom has come. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Lord, take the Word of God, uh, wherever we are in our understanding, and make application today by the Holy Spirit. We, we wait upon you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so this, the book of Mark, John the Baptist comes. We saw the two weeks ago and three weeks ago, saying the kingdom of God is coming. Jesus comes now and inaugurates his public ministry. And he's saying the kingdom of God has come. And the apostles said, after the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord, the kingdom of God is advancing. But it's all about the kingdom, the rule of God in our lives and in our hearts. So, so th- th- this to me is an intentional recapitulation or restatement of the creation narrative where it says this, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And when when Mark says that the Spirit of God descended, it's the same word, going back from Greek to Hebrew, that hovering. He's saying just as God created the heavens and the earth, now he's creating and revealing a new and glorious and wonderful thing in the person of Christ. And so as I look at this passage, I'm going to go through this real fast, and this is a very difficult issue, but we need to deal with it. It's the Trinitarian nature of God. And so as I look at this passage, I come to verse 10, and to me it screams out, Behold the glory of your God. And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open, which means to be torn open, abruptly torn. The heavens open. And, and the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And so we, 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 we see this glorious statement of the Trinitarian nature of God, which is beyond our ultimate, final, put-in-the-box comprehension, but it is something that is glorious that we must think deeply upon. In this passage, the Father speaks, the Son reveals the nature of God, and the Holy Spirit anoints or empowers. So when we say God is Trinitarian, we mean that God is one person, one essence with three persons. One person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We we do not mean what some people teach, 
tritheism. There are three gods, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No, they are, they are one essence, three persons. We do not mean what the early church dealt with, something called a modalism, that, that God is the same, but he just reveals himself at times as Father, and then as Son, and then as Holy Spirit. It's called modalism. We don't know. He, he is one essence, three persons, forever and eternally God. There's a man named Cornelius Plantiga who's written a book that deals with this, and it's in the bulletin. Let me just read part of it to you. He says that the, the persons within God exalt each other. They commune with each other. They defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other's interest at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. And a loving, interpersonal, glorious, Trinitarian relationship, eternally God. Lewis, C.S. Lewis says it so well in mere Christianity. He just says this. And that is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. That in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also the overflow of a person, the Holy Spirit. You say, well, that is so out there. It, it, it blows your mental circuits, but we've got to think deeply about this. I want you, as you glory in the greatness of all that God is, to become robust Trinitarians, to understand the power of all that God is for us, revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me read a few verses that what we call are triadic verses regarding the Trinitarian nature of God. Just three or four verses. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 and following. There are now varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Spirit, Lord, Christ, God. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Or Jude 20, 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there's a man named Mortimer Adler. I've enjoyed reading some of his books. Mortimer Adler died oh, 10 years, 12 years ago at the age of 98, 97. Mortimer Adler was for decades a professor of philosophy in the law school at the University of Chicago and professor of philosophy at Columbia University in New York. He was the man who put together the board and put out what we call the great books of the Western world by Encyclopedia Britannica. Brilliant man. In 1980, at the age of about 80, 79 or 80, he wrote a book entitled Thinking About God, A Pagan Perspective. He said, I'm a pagan. He said, a pagan believes that nature speaks of a great God, but you cannot define God. So he said, I'm a pagan perspective. Much to my surprise, I read in the journals about four years later that Mortimer Adler had been, 
had confessed faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior and had been publicly baptized as a statement of his faith in Jesus. And he was interviewed in Christianity Today, and this is what he said. Very interesting. Mortimer Adler. My, my chief reason for choosing Christianity was because the mysteries were incomprehensible. So he explained how Christ can be truly God and truly man. He explained the Trinitarian nature of God. He said, and he said this, What's the point of revelation if we can figure it out ourselves? If it were wholly comprehensible, then it would be just another philosophy, close quote. It's very interesting to me. Mortimer Adler. So, so, you know, as you look at this very quickly, there are three rivers to go down in, in philosophy, broadly speaking. One river is what we call monism or, or really atheism. And a monist, a Buddhist or a Hindu, wonderful people, wonderful things to say. But a Buddhist or a Hindu says that God is everything and everything is God. You can't distinguish God from things. And so God is just everywhere, but God cannot ultimately be defined. So, so we just say that God is, and as you go through the transmigration of the soul or reincarnation, eventually you're just absorbed into this amorphous, undefinable being and become part of that, and you lose your individuality. So God is impersonal. The second is what I would call the, the unipersonal God. The unipersonal God says that, that God is, is distant, and uh, uh, he's out there, he, he's wholly other, but he's not personally involved with us. That's the God of deism, the God of Islam, the God of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, people believe that there were truths that have been etched on our hearts, and we live in accord with those truths. So a, a unipersonal but ultimately impersonal God. And then the third option is the Trinitarian God of the Bible. The God is ultimately definable. He's ultimately revealed himself in the person of Christ. He is the good shepherd. He is the savior. He has come by the power of the spirit to teach us and lead us and to open the word to our understanding and to let our eyes see the beauty of all that Christ is. He is almighty God, God with us. And so for several years after thinking about this more, I've, 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 I've said this, that God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in the happy land of the Trinity. In loving relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Mortimer Adler said in 1980, before he became a Christian, he said this. He said, there are more consequences for thought and action flow from the affirmation or denial of God than from answering any other basic question. Think about that. More consequences for thought and action come from how you think about God than any other basic question. So, so that's why these things are ultimately incredibly important. Here's my one implication. Can't do a lot today. One implication, hear this. If God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you are made in his image, then you're made for relationship. You're made for community. You're wired for community. See, if God is unipersonal, and you say God is love, how does he say that? Because God wasn't loving before creation. But if God is Trinitarian, there's been this love relationship that is cascading down, and oh, you're made for relationship. So, so let me go one step further. I'll do this very quickly. Why 
Did God make you in his image? The Bible says God made male and female in his image. You say, well, the biblical answer is, God says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. In other words, be a person who goes forward. I said, yeah, okay, uh, yeah, absolutely. But, but, but back, why? And that's where I think the larger catechism, first question, gets it right. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let me explain that. To glorify God means to reveal, to praise in our spheres of influence, to, to, to lift up. So when my children were younger, for about four or five years, I got this magazine for them called Ranger Rick, put up by the National Wildlife Association. It had colors, fill in the blank about frogs or butterflies or hummingbirds. It was phenomenal. It was wonderful. Ranger Rick. I lament that I don't know more about the glory of creation. But where I live now, there's a tree in the backyard. And, well, there are a lot of trees. But this one tree, and this, for about two months, late summer, wood storks stayed in that tree every night. Now, wood stork was on the uh, endangered species list until just about six months ago. They're no longer there. But wood storks have migrated up the coast and they're on coastal South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, basically. And, and they're big birds. And so they would come in around the bend and about 5.30 or 6 o'clock at night and they would nest in these trees during the night. And, and if I was home, I would make sure I was standing in the yard because when they came over, you could hear their wings flapping in the wind. And it was wonderful. I saw they're wood storks. Look at their big birds. And then I started reading about wood storks. A, a wood stork, a family of four, if a family, if a Mom and Daddy Woodstork, what do we call them? Have two Woodstorkies, you know, whatever you call them. A family of four in one season will eat 400 pounds of fish. Four birds. And so I read that and I stood there one night and I thought, let's say there's, there are 16 or 20, let's just say 16. Let's say they're, all, they're coupled and they're going to have two storklings, eight couples. That represents 3,200 pounds of fish. Boom. Unbelievable. I went, wow. Isn't creation wonderful? No wonder we can't catch any fish. They're, all, they're being depleted. You know, so, so that's amazing. And then yesterday I, I walked out and I saw the sunrise. Did you see the sunrise yesterday? Oh, my soul. It was it's a funny thing, the sunrise was an hour later this morning. I got confused. I'm just kidding. So yeah, sunrise, sunrise yesterday. And there were, there were clouds in the sky. So, so the, the yellows and the oranges and the reds were just vibrant. There must have been 15 shades of yellow, orange, or red just everywhere. And then the sky was blue and the clouds were, they were on fire. And it was like, I just said, go sunrise, glorify God. Reveal the majesty of God. Praise his name. But see, for us, made in the image of God, we are to glorify God and enjoy him. See, a wood stork and their circle of influence can't enjoy God because God is a personal God, a speaking God. And we're made in his image. We not only glorify him, but we are called to enjoy him. And we enjoy him as, we, as he calls us to relationship with him. Now, very quickly, point two. 
Verse 11 says this. Or verse 10. When he came up out of the water, the heavens were torn open. Torn open. The heavens were opened and a voice called out saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The heavens were torn open. The, the tearing open, which means to be abruptly tear, the tearing open of the heavens spoke to the fact that this is the ultimate revealer of the glorious wonder of the living God. His name is Jesus. God, after he spoke long ago to the prophets in many portions and in many ways, Hebrews tells us, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The heavens were torn open. Jesus' ministry, tear open the heavens and say, Beloved, this is God. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Matthew 13, 16, and 17, where Jesus says to his men, before his passion, before his crucifixion, before his death, before his resurrection, before his ascension, he says, blessed are your eyes and what they see and your ears and what they hear. For I tell you, the many righteous men long to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. And they long to see what you see, but they did not see it. He says, you stand in a privileged position. You see Messiah King. And this is before the Passion. Or think of 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter writes to the early church that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, you early church, you church of the future. They were serving you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Angels long to see the coming Messiah. When the Jews offered a sacrifice, they longed to see Messiah King come and complete the sacrificial system. And, 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 and so the heavens are torn open. That's why Charles Wesley, the Anglican hymn writer, would write in the 1700s, Come thou long expected Jesus. Born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, i.e. the ultimate revelation of God. Hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. The heavens are torn open. Behold the grandeur of Jesus. And that's why... This little statement in the, in the bulletin from a guy named Michael Reeves from England, he says this. He says, my, my, my new life began when the Holy Spirit first opened my eyes and won my heart to Christ. Then for the first time, I began to enjoy the love Christ has for the, as the Father has always done. And through Christ, for the first time, I began to enjoy the love the Father as the Son has always done. Th that was how it started. That is how the new life goes on, by revealing the beauty and the love and the glory and the kindness of Christ to me. The Spirit kindles in me an ever deeper and more sincere love for God as I behold the glory of Christ. The heavens were torn open. Behold the glory of Christ. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You want to see who God is and what he's like? You look at Jesus. The Holy Spirit 
exalts the name of Christ. C.S. Lewis very quickly says this as he writes from your Christianity, and it's just a great statement. He says, he says and, and now what does all this matter? That's what I'm saying. What does all this matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or the drama or the pattern of this three-personal life is to be played out in each one of us, or putting it the other way around, each one of us has got to enter that pattern of living, take his place in that relational orbit. There's no other way to the happiness for which we were made. God made us to be worshipers. Good things as well as bad are caught by an infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy and power and peace and eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them, and that is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. If you want want to see the beauty and the grandeur and the goodness of God, look at Jesus. The heavens were torn open. And I was thinking about this. I thought about a time three years later when something else was torn open. Three years later, Christ is on the cross, and as he's breathing his last breath after his brutal crucifixion, he cries out, it is finished, and he gave up his life. And when he cried out, it is finished, the Bible says that the curtain in the temple, there there was a room called the Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies had a heavy curtain in front of it because only once a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and he made an annual sacrifice for the sins of the nation of Israel. Once a year, once a year only, once a year only. And so as, as he went to the Holy of Holies, once a year. And when Christ cried out on the cross, it is finished. That curtain was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing open, full-orbed fellowship with God because the Lamb of God had taken away the sin of the world. It's an incredible story. But because that curtain is torn open and because the heavens were torn open and Jesus came, we have fellowship with God by the work of the cross. So, so think deeply about the character of God. Eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And really, these things are for us. In the early church, in the early church, there was a controversy. There's a a man named named Athanasius, one of my heroes. Athanasius died in 373. And there was another guy named Arius who preceded Athanasius by about 30 years. They knew each other briefly. But, But Arius stepped up and he said, you know, to really get a handle on this, we need to say that Jesus was a created being. There was a time when Jesus was not. So he was a created being, an exalted being, a glorious being, but he was created. And, and, and the church at large, and Athanasius was a champion, said, no, a pox on that house. The, 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 the Bible teaches that Jesus is eternal. The apostles taught Jesus is eternal. How, how can he be a perfect sacrifice for sin if he's merely a created being? And so they had this pitched, ongoing dialogue and discussion, and Athanasius stood strong. And, and his, in those days, they would, they would 
they would teach truth like we do through song. I wish we sung more in our homes. I really do. But they, they would sing in the fields. They would sing as they went, Christians would. And so, so they came up with this song that they would sing as they loaded boats or as they worked in the fields and went like this, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, tis now and ever shall be world without end. As it was in the beginning, there was never a time when Christ was not. He's eternally God. As it was in the beginning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, tis now and ever shall be world without end. Amen. And Athanasius and the lovers of the apostolic truth won the day, and we stand in their debt because we see the beauty of God. So think deeply about God. Be a robust Trinitarian. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for the privilege of thinking about your purposes for these little ones and to think about your purposes for us. Thank you that the heavens were torn open. Thank you that on the cross, the temple uh, that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn open. Thank you that you invite us to fellowship with you by Christ.